Um, I want to talk a little bit uh, tonight about the nature of knowing Christ, um, and I want to talk about it through the lens of our rhythm of hospitality. And I'll just start by describing a, a, an account I had a few years ago. We have lived in our house here in Austin, like I said, this is our 11th year, and um, when we first moved in, you know, when you have little kids, you meet everyone really fast because the kids are out and other kids meet kids. And then our neighborhood was particularly good at doing things and house parties and block parties. And so it was rather quite fun. There was one couple that was a little older that I didn't get acquainted to for probably about two and a half, three years later. And it was because he was, and he's a man in his 60s, but he was working at the time in France. And while he was in France, he kept his home on Aqua Verde Lane, except um, he developed a passion for French wines, um, which it's always good to have a neighbor with a passion for French wines and disposable income, uh, because you always just want to see what he brings to the party. <laughs> well, um, we were at one of these parties, and he heard me talking about things and, and faith and church, and he just sort of seemed... Long short of it was, I ended up introducing him to another friend of mine who had, um, who he had made a career in a, for an international VP of a cookware company, and while he was an uh, international VP, and he later in life in his 50s became a pastor, he had become on the board of a, uh, a boutique wine label in Northern California. And so I said, oh, you two should meet. You guys love wines. You can talk Napa and Healdsburg, and you can talk Bordeaux. And, and so they start talking, and I kind of like wind up the conversation, and I just walk away thinking, oh, this will be great. They'll find great fellowship, except that they came back to me. We've got an idea. We want to have a wine party, and it's going to be us as us three couples. And I was like, oh, that sounds great. It'll never happen. But that's, I'm in. It, uh, it, well, it happened. And I started to see the correspondence going back and forth, and it was sort of like, grown men um, bowing up, like this sort of, um, look what I got in my cellar. Um, and, and my neighbor friend was so passionate, not just about collecting the wines, but sharing the wines, not as a show off, but, but in a way that says, oh, you should try this. I wanna share this with you, which is, which is rather humbling because I, I um, I'm a connoisseur for wines under $30 a bottle. Like, like that's got, and after that, I can't really tell too much of a difference. And I know that makes me sound sort of ghetto, but I'm just being honest. And um, so there's some emails that are going back and forth. And my friend sort of side emails me and goes, oh, he's got a collection. And this guy, as part of his parting gift, um, from his wine label company still got a case of the good stuff every year So that's the only reason he could keep up because his salary is not what it once was so he brought a couple of um, Boutique wines from Healdsburg and Napa uh, from the Heston label or Stephanie. It was a couple of Cabernet Sauvignons from 2004 2006 um, They're probably worth um, a few hundred dollars, but they were very nice wines and I've had them several times because we've been at parties together this other gentleman my neighbor shared two wines that night, and um, one was uh, a Cos de Stronel from um, 1982, um, and it was worth several hundred dollars, because I'm getting these sent to me, I'm Googling them going, oh good God, what am I getting myself into? Because how do you show up at that party? <laughs> the, the other wine was this mythical um, Lafitte Rothschild from 1996, that was estimated worth at some, it was at like a 99 rating. It was like 
a $2,000 bottle of wine. I'm like, are you sure? Like, please, this is pearls before swine. I'm just being honest. I wasn't sure I wanted to show up and be found out as uncultured and unsophisticated. There was a level of insecurity that's growing in me. But then the other part of it is, how do we keep up? I mean, I'm just, I don't know what to bring to this party except that I live in Austin. And when you live in Austin, you know about Hyde Park. And if you know Hyde Park, you know that there's Antonelli's Cheese Shop. And so I'm like, I can't go the wine route and try and compete. So I, with Laurel, bring in the list of these four very nice wines. I have to imagine that whoever Mr., the owner, Mr. Antonelli, when he dreamt of starting his cheese shop, which has all these wonderful cheeses from around the world, from hard to soft, um, and then all these different kinds of nice meats, he had someone like me in mind. Because you show up with this list and you're like, help. What goes with these things? And he was in no hurry. And it was like, this is why I opened. And he's like, oh, well, this goes with this. And, and this would actually bring out this. And, but here's the problem, to be honest. And I, I probably should stop the recording now. But I'm sitting there tasting these things like, whoa, this wine is bringing out this flavor in these cheeses. <laughs> and I think it was supposed to work the other way where I'm tasting like these wines. And uh, anyway, no. Um, Here's my point, is that I get a little insecure uh, about walking a mile in the shoes of folks who have different life experiences than me or different expense accounts than me. And it's just a matter of time that I feel like I'm just going to be found out as uncultured or unsophisticated um, or worse, unworthy of this great cherished gift and wasted wine. But yet... God has invited us to walk a mile in other people's shoes. Whether we're on the giving end or whether we're on the receiving end, God wants to use both of those scenarios to allow us to engage with people that he, in fact, has prepared in advance for us. So when we talk about the rhythm of hospitality, we're simply not talking about oh, I love to have people over, or we always have house guests, though that's actually the home that I grew up with. What I'm talking about, the rhythm, the spiritual practice of hospitality, sometimes it means that we're making room for another, whether it be in our friendship circle or whether it be around our family table or whether it be uh, around the lunch table in, in the workroom at, at your office. And other times, hospitality is learning to receive from someone. Because how do we grow close to people is when we actually can give to them. So how does it work when we have this theology of non-receptivity? It's like saying, God, I don't need your grace. I don't need your provision. Because God's provision, God's mercy, God's kindness, God's gifts come through men and women just like you. So if you want to play the self-sufficiency card, when you want to play the, I, I don't want to feel indebted to you, you might actually be limiting an intimacy with the Father. I didn't mean to get that in your face because that was more autobiographical, but that's really what's at stake when we talk 
about the rhythm of hospitality. Now, where I get this from would be most categorized or most um, typified in Luke chapter 10. We're not going to go there because we've studied that several times, but it's the people of peace concept where Jesus, before he gets to the Great Commission at the Matthew 28, he sends out the 12 and then he sends out 72 and he sends them out in pairs and he says, go. And he says, don't take an extra sack. Uh, 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 don't take, you know, an overnight bag. Don't take a pair of sandals. Don't take a money belt. Don't take an extra tunic. Just go and watch this. Find the friendly eyes. That's my words. But go to these places. Oh, oh I wasn't done. You're, you're, you're going to be treated like lambs among wolves. Um, you're, you're, there's people that won't receive you, but there's people that will receive you wholeheartedly, and it's those people that I've actually prepared in advance for you. Now, earn, earn your keep and, and do your part and take care, but find the people that I've prepared. You're going to have to have a few no's before you find a few yeses, but they're there. Trust me, go. It would be like this. Do you find people, new people, that you're like, why are you my new best friend? Why do we have such an initial chemistry? Why are you being so kind to me? Or why do I feel like I want to do favors for you? To which I would say, I believe that God has prepared my heart as much as he's prepared someone else's heart for that kind of initial connection. That's not accidental. That is not random. That is the Spirit of God doing something in advance because he wants to reveal his care, his provision, his hope, his mercy, his grace, his justice, his healing. There is something tangible that God wants to manifest in those kinds of relationships. So it would be very tempting for me to think, well, it's just my charm. I'm having a good hair day. I look good in these jeans. I, no, no, no. Maybe it's God within me who's prepared something in their heart to receive from me or me to receive from them. This is the rhythm of hospitality that I feel like is so significant for how God wants to grow our lives and grow Mission Hills. Um, and so there is a passage, if you have your Bibles, and I'm encourage you to just take some notes tonight. You, there's some places to jot a few things, jot a couple of references tonight. Um, in, in Acts chapter 8, We've talked about the Luke 10, people of peace. Mark 10 has it. But there's another instance of it that you might or might not be familiar with it. But it comes out of um, Luke's writing, but not the Gospel of Luke. Luke was also the writer of the book of Acts. Now, what's interesting is Luke is one of the Gentile writers. Matthew, Mark, and John are all Jewish writers. So they particularly write to a Jewish audience. So when you have a Gentile writer, he's appealing to the non-Jewish reader. And so John, or Luke has a way of introducing, in this case, not just women, but in this case, an Ethiopian eunuch. So we have an African of dark skin color, and he's having this encounter. Now, also central to what it means, just side note, the kids have left, um, he's a eunuch. And what is central to being a Hebrew is your circumcision, except this guy's gone above and beyond the call of duty. So to a Jew who values circumcision as a part of the Abrahamic covenant, how can you even accept someone who's a eunuch? Except that the gospel was intended for everyone. And so this is very intentional, and we can't miss the layers or the, the, the subtlety of what's happening. We have an African person uh, who's, who's gone far and beyond circumcision which was sacred 
to the Hebrew people and what it meant to be a person of God, and God is expanding their worldview. So here's the passage, and watch how God's Spirit gives Philip favor. God had already prepared the Ethiopian, uh, and, and he's studying and kind of on this pilgrimage himself, of which he came to Jerusalem from Ethiopia, but he couldn't even go into the temple because of his circumcision issue. And so first, we need to see it through the eyes of an Ethiopian, or not just the eyes, let's walk a mile. This is where we pull out our camera phone in scripture, and we take a picture of what hospitality looks like, and we're going to walk a mile in the sandals of an Ethiopian, and then we're going to walk a mile in the sandals of Philip. So we read these words, now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down to Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all of the treasury of Cadence, queen of the Ethiopians. Okay, very significant. We have a CFO of a country, right? This, this is the picture here. And, and so he's been on this spiritual pilgrimage. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading... Um, the, the book of Isaiah, the prophet, because they did not have the New Testament, so when you're reading and Jesus is teaching or the disciples are teaching, you're reading the Torah, the first five books, or the law and the prophets and the Psalms. This is what they had to study God's rev written revelation. Um, and the Spirit told Philip, go to the chariot and stay near it. Now, he kind of meanders on up. And so the first thing is we see God's prepared the heart. He's spiritually curious. He's hungry. And, and he's willing to receive guidance. Because look what he said. Philip ran up to the chariot. He heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me? And so he invited Philip to come and sit with him. Uh, and we'll just drop down, and so he goes into this passage of Isaiah, and then in verse 34, it says, the eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself, or is it someone else? And then Philip began uh, with, very, with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. And then he went on further, and as he traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, here's water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And so they just went swimming. And he, he got his baptism on right away. I mean, it's, it's a beautiful picture of how God has first prepared the heart of this Ethiopian who's just a seeker, and then God would prompt someone, probably not an audible voice, to say, find your way this way. Do you ever have irrational moments, what we like to call here at Mission Hills Kairos moments, where God would say, do this. God would interrupt your day with something that feels like there's something more going on. God has an irrational thing that says, you should help. And you're like, I'm busy. You should stop. But I've got somewhere to be. You should listen. Except that there's so many other people talking. I think Philip had a Kairos moment that said, go down to Gaza and find this guy. And all Philip really did is that he was listening and he had enough faith to respond because what is belief in God except an action? We can have faith, but if we have not deeds, <laughs> it's kind of mute at that point. And so he responds, uh, and, and so he shows up, and then they have this kind of divine appointment, if you will. See, I believe that relationships aren't random. 
connecting with people, even strangers, uh, aren't accidents. In fact, I like to think of these as divine appointment. Even if God never enters the topic of conversation. So my question to you, though, is what is the hope of heaven that you can bring to friends, to neighbors, to co-workers, to acquaintances, to families, or even to strangers? Because we are sent, we who have had an encounter with the living Christ, are sent to be people of hope, of justice, of mercy, of compassion. This is why we've organized Mission Hills around seven practices. Practices that aren't all-encompassing, they're not intended to be exhaustive, but I wanted to launch a faith community that would have the most practical demonstration of what it meant to share the heart of God. Generosity, hospitality, gratitude, compassion, community, renewal, mentoring, or what we like to call apprenticing. See, in some cases, though, you might be called on or have the opportunity to give of yourself, which, let's just be honest, as Westerners, as control freaks, as perfectionists, we prefer to be on the giving end. But in other cases, we might be called on to receive, even if that benefits them as much as it does us. So all I would simply say to you is don't resist the feeling that you might feel of indebtedness simply because someone might want to help you. Oh, I'm fine. I'm good. I'm good. Are, are we, am I, straight-arming the Spirit of God in that moment? It's like when friends decide they're going to move and they don't call you even though you have a truck. And I'm not looking at anyone in particular but there are people in this room that just moved. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm entertaining myself there, I digress. Um, uh, here's the thing, though. The one thing that I want us to develop more language for is the, answering the $50,000 question. What is the difference Christ is making in your life? You might have met Christ at eight years old. You might have met Christ in some vague way in college. You might have met Christ in a formal or in an osmosis kind of way. My question is, is that since some kind of revelation might have happened, what is the difference he's making if that is a source of hope or strength or you find yourself at home in Christ? I have to tell you a story that occurred years ago. Bjorn was an infant. It was a time where before rent went up on the airplane and he could still be a lap baby and he was never a wiggly baby. So we traveled a lot before he turned three. So I remember flying to Denver, Colorado and getting seated next to this man who had an early boarding. It was in the front row. His name was Robert. Um, we sat down, because you have kids, it's easy. Conversation just flows and you talk about all manner of things. And we sat down next to Robert. He had a wheelchair, and um, he had lost uh, most of his mobility in his legs. Um, and as the conversation progressed, he figured out that I was a professional Christian, that I was a pastor, which is usually a conversation killer, except that this guy wanted to go tell me his story, and in most cases, take it out on me. To the point that he's literally, like, I'm sitting in the middle seat, Laurel's here on the window, and he's on the aisle, Bjorn's in my lap, and he looks right at my son, and he says, 
I'm so sorry that you have to grow up in this home. <laughs> I don't feel that bad. <laughs> like, and here's what's He grew up in that super hypocritical, drunken, deacon, Baptist family home that he saw so much hypocrisy between the event called church and the way he was treated as a child and the way his mom was treated by this man. He had such disdain that you could feel the, the, the temperature boiling in his intonation as he was describing his, his, his disgust with Christianity. And, um, and, and let me just say this. We're on our way to Denver. He's on his way to Colorado Springs because he's on his way to NORAD to go put his finger on a button. He was literally a rocket scientist. And, and so this was a very intelligent, educated man. And as we began to talk about how he exhausted all of his pursuit in religion because there's something, I think, internal in all of us that has this, this God-shaped void, this sort of what uh, Ecclesiastes would indicate as he said eternity in the hearts of men and women. That, that he has pursued every kind of flavor of spirituality. And I said, well, what is it that you've kind of settled on? And he says, here's what it is. Reincarnation. It's the only thing that makes sense. To which I said... I tend to agree. To which he looked at me with sort of surprise. What are you talking about? Because I know what flavor you come from. You think reincarnation is... I said, well, let me explain what I mean. If this world were an end in of itself, I want my money back. I think that's what you're getting at, don't you? And he goes, yes. I said, well, I don't think we're created for this world, but I also don't think that the world that you and I know as native is the world that God intended. So what you have to look at is Genesis 1 and 2 before sin started, Genesis 3, and the world pre-regret, pre-shame, pre-fear. Because there was naked and unashamed in literal and figurative ways, in spiritual and in emotional ways, that there was no shame, fear, and regret. But all of a sudden, sin introduced, I think, in my opinion, Lots of things that we've learned as normal, but is of the tension that we live with. I don't think it was ever God's desire for people to grow up with a chemical disorder or a propensity towards anxiety or bipolar. I don't think God ever intended in the garden that cancer would be a part of the human experience or mosquito bites for that matter. I don't think natural disasters were ever God's intention when he created an earth and put his thumbprint on it and said it was good. But we're trying to extrapolate the heart of God from a broken humanity and it just can't be done. So what I'm saying to Dr. Robert is that I don't think this world is an end in of itself except that the only difference between your eternity and my eternity is I don't think I can ever perform at such a level that I get to come back as an evolved species. But I do believe that we are created for eternity. In fact, I believe that eternity has begun even now. And I have dual citizenship in both heaven and on earth. And as an agent of heaven, as a citizen of heaven, I can be responsible for ushering in heaven on earth where there's hell on earth. So this Tuesday, I get to go be a part of a funeral service to bring a little heaven on earth 
where people are experiencing loss, despair, grief, and in some cases, hopelessness. I consider that a privilege, not because I'm a pastor, but because I happen to have a faith in a resurrected Christ. When I think about that story, I think about a passage. There's one more passage that I want to share with you out of Acts chapter 17, and it's a Mars Hill passage. And I just want to give you context around this because it's so easy for you guys to somehow look, oh, David, you're the pastor. You've got a language for this. What I'm trying to do through the rhythms is give you a language to articulate faith, to give you practices so that you can share faith, to give you a very practical way that you can instill a living faith into your own kids. In Mars, uh, in Mars, in up Mars Hill, Paul has had an interesting encounter. And if you read in, in Acts chapter 18, and we don't have a ton of time to really unpack it, but I just want to highlight a few verses from this. And so what's happened is, is that there's this picture of what we're supposed to say. And Paul uses this common, very ordinary language. And so if we're pulling out our camera phones because we want to walk a mile in his shoes, this is a picture of hospitality as making room for, but also receiving from. So Paul walks into this place. It's Greece. He's walking into Athens. These people are, are spiritually sophisticated, and he walks through a garden, um, a garden that would not be unlike, I don't know how many of you have traveled through Scandinavia. There's a place in Oslo called Vigalon. V well, Vigalon is an installation. It's, it's a park that's in the center of Oslo, and it's a sort of um, impressionistic park. Um, it, was, it was sculpted uh, by this gentleman, Gustav uh, Vigalon. Um, he's also the one that did the medals for the Nobel Peace Prize. He's a famous Norwegian um, artist who does sculpture work, and it, and it shows kind of the cycles of life. And I've gone there several times. Whenever I leave, I sort of leave sort of melancholy because he's so emotive in all of his sculptures. Um, but I can only imagine that that's what it was like for Paul walking through the city of Athens and just seeing statue after statue, bronze, stone, granite, wood, all of this, this, this sort of garden of man-made structures. And here comes Paul. And, and I want to just give a couple of, uh, of insights into this. So beginning in verse 16 of chapter 18 of Acts, um, he, he says these words. Um, oh, excuse me. Uh, uh, I think it's 17. Um, he says, while Paul uh, was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of items. So let me just pause real quick. Paul is on his day off. He was waiting for them. There was no ministry engagements. There was no speaking appointments. There was no one there that he was looking to meet, except that he's waiting for the others. It's a rendezvous point, so he's kind of got a day off. And so he's strolling around the city, probably eating the local cuisine, kind of a cultured guy, taking it all in. He's well-read, well-studied, and yet he starts noticing all of these things, and there's something he can't not do except speak to the reality of the risen Christ. So he's on his day off. Who wants to work on their day off? Who, and, and then the thing is, is that he's coming here after a series of beatings. Every time that he's opened his mouth, and we don't have time to go into it, but if you go through Paul's travels, he's on a business trip. But if you look at his business trip leading up to Acts 17, he's been beaten 
He's been thrown in jail. He's created riots. Every time he starts to talk about Jesus, it doesn't go well for him on a comfort level. Now he's got a day off, and you're like, oh, I can't not do this now. And you're like, what is it with you, buddy? Give it a rest. You're still literally healing from the last beatdown. Except Paul starts to walk around. So do you have a picture of what Paul can't not do? But he's already worked out his language. And so he starts walking around. And so, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as those in the marketplace, day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? And others remarked, he seems to be advocating for foreign gods. And they, seemed to, uh, they said to this Paul, who was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Um, and so he engages this very highly sophisticated crowd. It's like walking into the Berkeley campus. It's like walking into the center courts of, of the UT and taking on the professors. These were highly educated, very well-read people. And Paul doesn't skip a beat. You know what I have often said? There's certain things that don't intimidate me. Maybe one way I've learned to put it is I'm just getting more secure with my insecurities. <laughs> Maybe it's just it comes with age. But I've learned something, that people who have fame or wealth or beauty or education are struggling with a lot of the same things I am. Well, they, they might not be living paycheck to paycheck. They might not be as ADD as I am and get through books faster. But everyone has the same kind of brokenness and the same kind of longing. And so um, when I go into homes of wealthy people or famous people, there's, there's a common struggle. And so it's not something to be feared because, oh, I'm just not eloquent, or, oh, I'm just not well-read, or, oh, I'm... There's something that says the Spirit leads us. Okay, so he, he starts to go on, um, and in verse 22, we pick up, and he says, Paul stood up then in the meeting of the Areopagus, and he says, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. This is Paul going, ah, bingo, I found my inroad. I found my common ground to meet on. I don't relate to that God. I don't relate to that God. That guy's a crock. An unknown God, ooh, that'll preach. I can work with that. Let me name your unknown God. And so the God who made the world and everything in it, listen to how he says it. Um, he doesn't start quoting scripture. Why? Because these Greeks would not revere scripture. They wouldn't see it as authoritative. And so he takes a different route. Um, and he says, the God who made the world and everything in it, uh, the Lord of heaven and of earth, does not live in temples built by hands, and he is not served by human hands as if needing anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of, uh, of men that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the time set for them that the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from one of them. Now listen what he does. For in him we live and move and have our being. There's a quote there. Why is he quoting and who is he quoting? 
my first thought is, oh, it must be something found in Isaiah or something. Except Paul's quoting an Epicurean philosopher, a poet in this moment, and he says, uh, by the name of, oh, oh, fully, where was his name? Oh, it was the uh, Cretan philosopher, Epimedes. Um, and then he goes on to say one other line, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring, which was a Sicilian Stoic philosopher by the name of Eratus. What is Paul doing except using a very common language of the people? I'm not trying to instill in you or farm out of you a Sunday school education that we can go use on people. I'm simply trying to give you a language in which you can begin in ever-increasing ways to talk about the heart of God, about generosity, about hospitality, about community, about renewal and living with sustainable margins, about what it means um, to take our life experience and invest it in the life of another, or to seek someone who's further along in marriage or in faith or in parenting or in career. See, there's something really practical and really tangible that I want us to start to figure out and to start to practice about these rhythms. And so I want to encourage you to grab some extra cards. Put them in your car. Put them on your kitchen table. Put them by your nightstand. Um, put them up on your bathroom uh, mirror and start to think about tangible ways in which you're experiencing either on the giving or the receiving end of one of our rhythms. Bottom line, I just want you to learn them so that you start to have language because this is the way that I think we're going to be able to practice hospitality. Paul shows up to a new place, but he finds the language of the people, and people say, David, what is a rhythm? My mom asked me this last week, David, what's another word for rhythm? And I went, practice, spiritual practice. And I think it's just true of who God is, and so I just attach the word rhythms. That sounds kind of weird. I know, because I think we needed to reinvent. I think language is important. I think language builds culture. I also think language, from whether you be a poet or a songwriter, has a way of penetrating hearts or capturing imagination differently. And I wanted a practical way, because one of the things we have said before is practice is the new spiritual deep. Not just how much scripture we know, but our practice. So when it says, love your neighbor, does that look like generosity or does it look like hospitality? Or does that like an look like an invitation to community or expressing gratitude? What does it mean to love your neighbor with one of the seven rhythms? So this week, I would love to see all of you set a goal to figure out a pair of shoes for every rhythm, whether you're on the giving end or the receiving end, but I want to give you a homework assignment to do that, to be mindful. And when you find yourself forgetting, pray for a reminder. Pray for the mind of Christ uh, and ask God for his help and his eyes to see. Let me just uh, close us in a word of prayer. I think we have one more song and then we'll just wrap up tonight. If you have time to come and sit outside and, and have a burger at Phil's, we would love, love, love to have you. But Father, would you, in these moments, still our hearts enliven our minds, soften um, our sensitivities so that we might respond in some cases, receive in other instances that which you have for us. 
I pray that you would forgive us of the sin of self-sufficiency so that we might become solely sufficient on you. One of your promises, Lord, was that we could experience the mind of Christ. So I pray that we would operate in those kind of wisdom gifts that would, that would have an allowance for you. And even in our own cunning, and even in our own experiences, and even in our own charm and wit and textbook smarts, we would still find the ministry of your Holy Spirit spoken with great clarity about how you want to reveal yourself in us and through us. And so I pray these rhythms in Jesus' name. Amen.